uh, Pastor Rawl so much and his wife, Bettina. How many love Pastor Rawl, huh? He's such an awesome guy. And it's a blessing to get here to teach the Bible, but especially because it gives him a break. How many know pastors need a break too, huh? Yeah, they, they do for sure. And so I hope he's, I understand he's camping down near San Diego. He might even be watching on uh, the YouTube. So we should cheer really loud so he can hear us all the way down in San Diego, huh? Yeah, we love him! I wanted to gr- bring you greetings from another Pastor Raw, Pastor Raw Reese, uh, over at Calvary Chapel, Golden Springs, where we are. Uh, we bring, bring you a greeting from everyone over there. We feel such a connection here with you. Uh, your pastor goes over uh, often on Tuesday mornings and meets with our leadership there, and uh, that's where we first got to know each other and have had the blessing of being out here a couple of times. And every time I'm with him, it's just such an encouragement. Only thing is, he looks way too young to have six kids and five grandkids. How many agree with that? Too cra- and Bettina, for sure, she looks way too young for all of that. So you guys are really blessed to have pastors like you do. I hope you know that. And uh, just meeting with your leaders uh, before the service uh, today, it's really encouraging to hear what the Lord is doing here. Uh, he's doing a new, fresh, and wonderful thing. So just keep praying, and who, who knows what God will do. Well, if you brought a Bible with you, please open in your Bible to the book of 1 John. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, it's a book near the end of the very Bible, uh, very end of the Bible. Uh, it's the fourth book from the end of the Bible. Uh, the book of 1 John, 1 John chapter 4. As I was praying about what the Lord would have me to share with you today, He put on my heart a very important passage. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 to 21. And the title of the Bible study today is, It's All About Love. It's all about love. As we come to study God's Word, let's pray, can we? Lord, we pause for a moment in the middle of such busy lives, such hectic schedules, such a frantic pace in Southern California. Lord, we gather in this place today to worship you, to fellowship together, and especially to study your word. Lord, we thank you so much for the Bible, for each part of the Bible and every part of the Bible, but in particular, Lord, we thank you for the portion of Scripture we get to look at today in 1 John chapter 4. And Lord, we are mindful that every time we open your word, that your Holy Spirit comes alongside and teaches us, takes your truth and impresses it on our minds and our hearts in unforgettable ways. And so we pray today as we study the scriptures that your Holy Spirit would be moving in this room, opening our eyes to see your truth. And even more than that, taking your truth and showing us how it applies to our lives. Bless us as we study. May your word impact this church, not only today, Lord, but in the days, the weeks, the months, even the years that may be to come. We thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said amen. 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 His name was Kevin. Kevin Jones. 
He was a unique, odd young man. He was a college student. He wore a t-shirt that had holes in it and ragged jeans, and that was his entire wardrobe for four years of college. Kevin was not a Christian. He'd never been to church a day in his life. But the college that he went to, right across the street from the college, there was a very well-dressed conservative church, and they were trying to reach out to the college students that were there. And so they purchased a large banner that they hung across the side of their church that said, College Students Welcome. Well, Kevin had never been to church a day in his life, and so one Sunday morning he decided he was going to check out this church thing, and so he got up, he had his breakfast, he walked across the street, and when he got to the church, the service had already begun. In fact, the choir was singing a number before the pastor would give a, get up and give his message. And as Kevin walked into the back of the church, the church was totally filled with people that day. There really wasn't a seat anywhere. And since he'd never been to church before, he didn't know what church was about. He didn't know what to do. And so he just walked down the center aisle looking one way or in the other, and he couldn't seem to find a place anywhere. So he just walked up to the front and squatted and sat down on the floor right in front of the pulpit. Well, as he's looking for a place and as he's squatting down, the choir is finishing their song and there's an awkward feeling in the room as everybody's looking at what he's doing and before the pastor gets up, it's just dead silent and way in the back of the room, an old man, a deacon, his name was Albert, he got up. Albert was a very distinguished, conservative, old school guy. And he got up in his three-piece pinstripe suit and he started to make his way down the side aisle toward the front. And as he did, everyone could hear the clicking of his cane on the linoleum floor in the church. And as he's making his way slowly forward in their minds, all of these people at this well-dressed conservative church, in their minds, they're thinking, well, we know, we know what he's got to do. We know that he's not used to these young kids and the strange ways that they behave. We, we know what he's got to do. We understand before the pastor gets his message, you know, he's got to get things in order. And so Albert made his way forward. Only when he got to the front, he stood right next to Kevin. And then he dropped his cane and with great effort, that old man squatted down on the floor right next to Kevin. Later he said he did that because he didn't want Kevin to feel alone. He didn't want Kevin to feel like no one loved him, that no one cared about him. Well, the, the moment the old man did that, the atmosphere in the room totally changed. The pastor quickly made his way to the pulpit and he addressed his dear precious people. He said, my dear ones, he said, what I'm about to say you might never remember, but what all of us have just seen, we will never forget. And how could they forget? 
For in that moment, that old man was like God. Later, when they asked the old man about what he did, he not only said that he did what he did because he didn't want Kevin to feel alone, he said he did what he did because he had learned it from another old man. An old man that lived 2,000 years ago. We know that man as the Apostle John. The church tradition outside of the Bible tells us that the Apostle John was the last living apostle. It tells us the Apostle John lived to be more than 90, probably 100 years of age. And in his long life, He had seen a lot of things happen. He had seen a lot of water go under the bridge. He had seen a lot of people come and go. He outlived Peter and James and Andrew. He outlived Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew. He outlived Matthew and Thaddeus and Simon. He outlived James the Less and Jude and in the Apostle Paul. And in his long life, he had learned many, many important things. And many of those things he had learned the hard way. And as the Apostle John approached the end of his life, knowing he would not have long to live, he sat down to write a short letter to the church at Ephesus, the church that he was a part of, the church that he was the oldest member of. And as he writes that letter, a letter that we now know as the book of 1 John, he's writing the things that are on his heart. And the part of the letter that is the most significant part of the letter, the key part of the letter is the part that we study this morning in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 to 21. And it's as if in this section, as you will see, the Apostle John says, if you want to know what I have learned in my long life, if you want to know what I have learned in all my experience, if I could boil it all down to just one thing, it's about love. <laughs> it's about love. As we read this portion of Scripture, if you happen to have a pen or a pencil, I would highly encourage you to do something. I would encourage you to underline the word love or loved or loves. Every time you see it, underline the word as we read. The old man John writes, Beloved, let us love one another. 
for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so we are in the world. And there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love does his brother whom he has seen. How can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Love, 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 love. Love, 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 love. Love is all over the place in this passage. In the 15 verses we just read, you find the word love 24 times. You are good students of the Bible because you have such a wonderful pastor who teaches you through the Bible. And perhaps you know that there is a chapter in the Bible that is sometimes known as the love chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Do you know in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 you find the word love only nine times, but here you find it 24 times. In this chapter, you find the word love more than any other chapter in the whole Bible. And it's as if the old man John says, if you really want to know what matters most in life, if you really want to know what I have learned in all my years of serving the Lord, of being involved with God's people, it's about love. What is so incredibly wonderful and so incredibly beautiful about what we see here is that John speaks to us about three kinds of love. If you happen to have a piece of paper and a pencil to jot some notes, I would encourage you to jot down these three kinds of love and some of the scriptures that we will give you. Because what John says is so simple and yet so incredibly profound.
three kinds of love. What we could call downward love, what we could call upward love, and then what we could call outward love. Downward love, upward love, and outward love. And there is a connection, there is a progression in these three kinds of love. As we will see, downward love leads to upward love, which leads to outward love. A first kind of love that John speaks about in this passage is what we could call downward love. God's love for you and God's love for me. God's love for us. We see it in verse 10, but pick it up again in verse 9. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, downward love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that he sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, downward love, his love for us. And how do you know about the downward love of God? How do you know that God really loves you? Because he sent his son to be the propitiation. He sent his son to be the sacrifice for you and me. He sent his son to die so that you and I might live. And in that there is no greater expression of the love of God than there ever could be This downward love of God, this sacrificing love of God for you and me is found all over in this scripture. Let me just give you a few passages where you will see it. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, Paul says, But God demonstrated his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, the Apostle Paul writes again of this sacrifice of God. He says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And then that most famous verse in all of the Bible, John 3 and verse 16, you know it well, for God so loved, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John says, if there's one thing I've learned in life, it is that God loves us. That is the greatest thing in life that you can ever know, 
that is the greatest thing in life that you can ever show another person, that is the greatest thing in life that you can ever teach another person, that God loves us so much that he was willing to sacrifice his son that we might live. Such downward love is vividly, powerfully, unforgettably illustrated in the true story of a young father whose name was John Griffith. In the beginning part of the last century, there was a young man who lived in Oklahoma named John Griffith, and he married a beautiful young lady, and they had a precious little boy. His name was Greg. And life was good and wonderful for them. But then in 1929, when the stock market crashed, down came crashing all of John's hopes and dreams. To get a job to provide for his family, they had to move east. And he got a job working as a bridge control operator on the great Mississippi River. And it was his job to sit in the control room and to raise and lower the bridge. He would raise the bridge so ships could go underneath on the Mississippi River, and then he would lower the bridge so trains could go across the Mississippi River. And day after day, he would raise and lower the bridge, and life became good for him again. But one day, his young son Greg said, Daddy, could I please go with you? to work today. I want to see you raise and lower the bridge. And so they packed a lunch together and the two of them off they went to the Mississippi River so little Greg could watch his daddy run the bridge. And all morning long as John was raising and lowering and raising and lowering the bridge, Greg looked at his father in awe and wonder and he thought, My dad has got to be the greatest dad in the world. Well, it was almost lunchtime, and John had just raised the bridge for a ship to go underneath, and he locked the controls into position so he and young Greg could have lunch together. They took their bag lunch, and they sat out on one of the observation decks, eating lunch together, just enjoying the day and talking together, father and son, It was almost like a dream. But then all of a sudden, the shriek of a train whistle shocked John back into reality. He looked down at his watch. At 1.07 exactly, the Memphis Express would come roaring out of the woods to cross the bridge, only the bridge was still up. He knew that if he didn't lower that bridge, all 400 passengers on that train would go to a watery death. He looked at his son, Greg, and he said, Greg, stay right here. I'll be right back. He quickly made his way up the catwalk to go into the control room to lower the bridge. As he had been trained to do, he looked down before he pushed the levers to lower the bridge. And as he looked down... No, it couldn't be. No. As he looked down, he saw the body of his young son, Greg, trapped between the gear mechanism of the bridge 
Evidently, when John had gone up the catwalk, Greg had tried to follow him. He had slipped and fallen off the observation deck down into the gear mechanism of the bridge. And that young father had just moments to make the most difficult decision of his life. Do I go down and rescue my son so that he will live? If I do, 400 people will die. Or do I lower the controls, taking the life of my son so that 400 people will live? True story. John Griffith buried his tear-faced tear-stained face in his shoulder. He shoved the controls and slowly lowered the bridge. He sacrificed his son so all those people could live. And dear ones, I want to tell you, that is but a faint illustration of what it costs God the Father to sacrifice His own Son for you and for me. Sometimes we sing that song, Here I Am to Worship. And I like the line of that song, I'll never know how much it cost. You will never know how much it cost. I will never know how much it costs. But dear one, I'm here to tell you today, be sure of the love of God. Never doubt for a moment that God loves you. If you ever questioned for one second whether God loves you, just take a look at the old rugged cross and think about the cost that God the Father paid that you might live, that you might be saved, that you might be redeemed. A hymn writer wrote a song I like so much called The Love of God. A hymn writer wrote, The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair, Adam and Eve, bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Could we, with ink, the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every Stalk on earth a quill, and every man ascribed by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich, how pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. But John not only speaks about downward love, he speaks about upward love because downward love will lead to upward love. The more you think about, the more you know how much God loves you, 
the more you will love him. This is what verse 19 is all about. John writes, we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. Listen, the one who doesn't love God, the problem with that person is they don't know how much God loved them. See, there's too many churches, there's too many Christians that preach a condemning, legalistic message to try to motivate and manipulate God's people to get them to do what they want them to do. You never have to do that. All you have to do is show them the love of God. And the person who truly knows the love of God says, Lord, thank you so much. What can I do to serve you? What can I do to please you? What can I do to show you that I love you? Oh, Lord, there's nothing I have in my life. There's nothing I could do in the whole of my life that ever would even come close to loving you the way that you have loved me. We love him because he first loved us. Not only is the downward love of God all over in the Bible, but so also is the upward love we ought to have for him. If you have a paper and pencil, jot down Deuteronomy 11 and verse 1. Moses writes, Therefore, love the Lord your God and walk in all his ways. In Psalm 31 verse 23, David says, Love the Lord your God, all you saints, for the Lord our God is faithful. In Mark 12 and verse 30, Jesus said, And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. The more you know about how much God loves you, the more you will want to love him with all that you are and in every way you can. The more you think about what he has done for you, what he has done for me, the more you will want to love him back. This upward love of God that we should have for him is like the love a young lady named Debbie Williams had for her jump master, Gregory Robertson, on April 17, 1987, a Good Friday. Debbie Williams and a half dozen of her friends jumped out of an airplane at 12,000 feet near Phoenix, Arizona. Debbie was a skydiver, and she, along with a team of other skydivers, jumped out of the plane. Their goal was to form a mid-air formation. A photographer would take some pictures. They would disconnect and then come safely to the ground. Debbie jumped out of that plane at 12,000 feet, only she had miscalculated her descent in joining up with the other group. And so at more than 50 miles an hour, she slammed into one of the other divers. It knocked her unconscious. With face bloody from the impact, She was falling, falling, falling like a limp 
rag doll toward a certain death. But her jump master, Gregory Robertson, he, he saw what had happened. He watched her bloody face fly by, and he knew exactly what he needed to do. He tucked his chin down into his chest. He put his hands at his side, and he went into what's called a no-lift dive. Down and down he went after her at speeds of more than 180 miles an hour until finally he caught up with her, grabbed a hold of her, and yanked his parachute at just 2,000 feet above the ground. And he saved Debbie's life when she came to and they explained to her what had happened and they explained to her what her jump master Gregory Robertson had done she was so grateful to him she was so thankful to him and for the rest of her life she felt indebted to help him and honor him in whatever way that she could. How could she not love a person who saved her life? And that is just a faint picture of the love we ought to have for God because he not only saved us from death, he saved us from eternal death, a death of separation from him in darkness and fire forever and ever and ever. How could we not love him? How could we not want to serve him? There's a worship leader named Tommy Walker, and he wrote a song I like so much called, How Could I Not Love You? He says, how could I not love you, Lord? How could I not serve you, Lord? How could I not follow you, my Lord? In the early days of Calvary Chapel, we used to sing a simple chorus called The Greatest Thing. We used to sing the words, The greatest thing in all my life is loving you. The greatest thing in all my life is loving you. I want to love you more. I want to love you more. Because the greatest thing in all my life is loving you. The old man John, he knows he doesn't have long. And he writes to the Christians in the church he was a part of. And he says, you want to know what I've learned? I've learned that God loves me. And I've learned the greatest thing in all my life is loving him back and thanking him back. But dear ones, the downward love of God, which leads to the upward love of you and me, will thirdly lead, instantly lead to an outward love. Because the moment you understand God loves you and you say, Lord, I want to, what could I do to show you my love? What could I do to show you my appreciation? Instantly, you're going to hear him speak to you from heaven. Instantly, you're going to hear him speak to you from his word. Then you need to love those who are around you. Look at it. Look at it. John writes in verse 11, he says, Beloved, If God 
so loved us, what should we do? Just love him back? No. We ought to love one another. The last verse we read, verse 21, and this commandment we have from him that he who loves God must love his brother. You understand the downward love of God? You understand he loved you so much and so you say, Lord, I want to love you back. And the Lord says to you, really? You really want to love me? If you really want to show your love for me, then you love that person on the right and the left. You love that person in the front and the back. You love that person who walks through those doors. You love the neighbor next to you. You love the co-worker. You love one another. Listen, the downward love of God is all over in the Bible. (laughs) The upward love we ought to have for him is all over in the Bible. And the outward love of God that we ought to have for each other, it's all over in the Bible as well. Here's some scriptures, jot them down. In John 15 and verse 12, Jesus said, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. In 1 John 3 and verse 11, this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. John 3.16 says, God so loved us. 1 John 3.16 says, and in this is love, since he laid down his life for us, we also ought to lay down our lives for one another. The downward love of God leads to the upward love for him, which leads to the outward love toward one another. Because once you know how much you're loved, you instantly want to show other people that kind of love. The kind of love we're talking about is the kind of love an old farmer learned from a little boy named Johnny. There was an old farmer who had a big dog who had puppies. And so the old farmer wanted to sell the puppies and he made a little sign, a crude little sign, puppies for sale. He walked down the farm road to the mailbox and he nailed the sign out there so the passerbys could see that puppies were for sale. He went back doing his work on the farm when all of a sudden he felt a tug at his pant leg and he looked down and there was a small boy there. His name was Johnny. He said, Mr., I'd like to have one of those puppies. (laughs) Well, the old farmer, he looked at the little boy and said, well, I don't think you really have enough money to buy one of the puppies. The little boy, he reached in his pocket and he counted out. He says, I have a dollar and 39 cents. Is that good enough for a look? And so the old farmer, with tenderness in his heart, said, yeah, okay. And so he whistled and said, hey, Dolly. And all of a sudden, this big dog came out of the doghouse walking down the ramp. And in behind, there were these four little fur balls, (laughs) these four little cute puppies. And then all of a sudden, the fifth puppy came out of the doghouse it was much smaller than all of the other puppies. It was the runt of the litter. It didn't walk so well like all of the other puppies. 
And the instant that little boy Johnny saw that puppy, he said, that's the one. That's the one. I want that puppy. And the farmer said to him, he said, well, you, listen, little boy, you don't really want that puppy. That, that puppy, he's the, the runt of the litter. That little puppy can't run like the other puppies can run and play with you like the other puppies can play with you. You don't want that puppy. You want one of the other puppies. The little boy was insistent. No, 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 no. He said, that's the puppy I want. And then all of a sudden, he did something the old farmer didn't expect. The little boy reached down and he pulled up his pant leg. And the moment he did, it revealed a brace that was on the leg of this young crippled boy. And the little boy looked into the face of the farmer. And he said, I want that puppy. He said, my daddy loves me and I don't run so well. He said, I want to love that little puppy like my daddy loves me. Do you love others like your daddy loves you? Because here's the truth. You may think you're so smart. You may think you're so wealthy. You may think that you're so in control of your life. But here's the truth. The truth is we're a bunch of runts, all of us. The truth is, all of us don't run so well. All of us don't walk so well. But our Father loves us. And who are we to act like we're so superior to those who are around us? Who are we to think we're so better than the one on our right, in our left, in front of us, and behind us? The truth is, God loves us when we're not so lovable. And we need to love those who are not so lovable. The old man John was a part of the church at Ephesus. The tradition outside of the Bible tells us something interesting that would sometimes happen in their worship services. They would gather on a Sunday morning perhaps much like this, but in a home, and they would sing songs, and they would study the Bible. And Timothy was the pastor of that church there in Ephesus, and the old man John was a part of the congregation. And from time to time, in the worship service, John would raise his hand. He would just kind of motion, and young Timothy would say, John, do you have something to say? And he would say, yes. So the people around them, around John, would help him to his feet and would kind of steady the old, frail man. John, do you have something to say? Oh, yes. He would stand to his feet and he would say, little children love one another. Little children love one another. That is all. And then he would sit down. Love one another. That is all. If you know how much God loves you and you really love him back, then the best way you can show that you love him is to love one another And this is what the world is looking for. 
This is what the world is looking for now more than ever before. I was privileged a few weeks ago to be a part of a very unique meeting of Christian leaders here in the United States out at the prestigious Pepperdine University. There is a researcher named George Barna. Perhaps you've heard of his name before. He is the foremost researcher of pastors and churches in America, and they just concluded a six-year study that is the most extensive research ever done on pastors in America, the most extensive research ever done on churches in America, and I was privileged to be part of about 300 leaders at Pepperdine University when they revealed their findings. It was fascinating. It was fascinating. Over four hours, I felt like I was drinking water out of a fire hydrant. There were so many things. But perhaps the most impacting part of the day is what they revealed about the up-and-coming group called the Millennials. What's the next generation want? What are they looking for? What can churches do to reach the next generation? You know, so many church leaders in America right now, so many pastors in America right now, they think they know how to reach the next generation. They don't really know because they never really ask the next generation. They just, they're just doing what they think is the right thing to do. And the thing they think is the right thing to do is to be young, hip, and cool. If we can just use all the technology, if we can just make church cool, then the young kids will come. Then the millennials will come. And Barna, over six years, researched it, and he discovered that's not what they want. Surprising to a lot of leaders. They did thousands of interviews among the millennials, asking them, what is it you're looking for in a church? They started going to all the churches that did the best job of reaching the millennials. And they asked them, what are you doing to reach this group? And they asked the millennials, why do you go to this particular church? And what they discovered, listen to me, what they discovered was the number one answer the millennials gave, the number one answer the churches gave in reaching the millennials was this. The millennials are looking for a place where they are loved. They're looking for a place that feels like family to them. They're looking for a place where older people care about them and make them a part of their lives. They went to all these churches throughout America that are doing the best job with the millennials. And one of the churches was back in Indiana. Six years ago, it was a church that had less than 100 old people. Now, it's almost 2,000, and most all of them are millennials. And they asked them, you know, what are you guys doing? They asked the millennials there, why do you go to that church? And a lot of the younger ones they were interviewing, they said, well, why do you go? Well, because of Bill. (laughs) Why do you go? Because of Bill. Bill, Bill, Bill. They kept hearing this Bill guy, and they they thought, well, we have to meet Bill. Who's Bill? And in their mind, they're thinking, you know, young, hip, skinny jeans. (laughs) I mean, he's cool, the the epitome of cool. 
So they were so excited to meet Bill. The door opens. This 76-year-old man who's as uncool-looking as you can ever imagine walks in the door. Shocked them. But he loved them. He went to their games. He became a part of their life. Listen, and the line of the day, the bottom line of their research in reaching the next generation is this. Listen, I pray this phrase sticks in your mind. Love is the new cool. Actually loves the old cool. John learned that a long time ago. 2,000 years ago, he told the church, this is how you're going to reach the next generation. Not your clever techniques. Not your advertising. Not your slick brochures. Not all of these hip, cool, fancy things. The way that you're really going to impact the world is to know God loves you. And to love him, the greatest thing in all my life is loving you. And if you really do that, listen, you're going to love other people. So simple, but so profound. It's the lesson that a group of junior high kids learned at a youth camp in a way they never, ever, 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 ever forgot. Their counselor writes about it. He says, I was asked to be a counselor at a junior high camp. Everybody ought to be a counselor at a junior high camp at least once. As you might know, a junior high kid's concept of a good time is picking on people. And at this camp, there was a little boy who was suffering from cerebral palsy. His name was Billy. There was a group of boys who picked on him. Oh, how they picked on him. As he walked across the camp with his uncoordinated body, they would line up and imitate his awkward movements. I watched him one day as he was asking for directions. He said, which way is the snack shop? And the boys mockingly imitated him. It's over there, Billy. And then they laughed at him. But it all reached a high point on Thursday morning. It was Billy's cabin's turn to give devotions. And I wondered what would happen because they had appointed Billy to be the speaker. And I knew they just wanted to get him up there to make fun of him. As Billy dragged his way to the front, you could hear the kids giggling all over the room. It took little Billy almost two minutes to say just ten words. Billy got up there and said, Jesus loves me. I love Jesus, and I love you. His counselor writes, when he finished, there was a dead silence, and every junior high kid in the room 
was bawling. And things were never the same. Billy had taught us all a lesson. The most important lesson of all, the lesson of love. You see, it's all about love. It's all about love. It's all about love. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this portion of Scripture, this most important passage, this chapter that has the word love more times than any other chapter in the whole Bible. Lord, I thank you so much for Refuge Bible Fellowship. This is a place of love. This is a place that understands your love. This is a place that loves you. This is a place where people love each other. And I pray this wonderful, this profound work that you have done here and are doing here would increase more and more and more. Lord, I pray on Palm Sunday. I pray on Easter. I pray in the days after that that those who come into this place, Lord, would know about love. That's what the world's looking for. That's what the world needs to know God loves them. to know they are loved by others and accepted and encouraged. So I thank you, Lord, so much for this amazing church, this wonderful, loving church. Lord, I pray what you've done here would expand more and more and more. I thank you so much for my friend, Pastor Raul. Bless him and his family, Lord, as they're away today. Lord, just give them rest and refreshing and encouragement and then bring them back, Lord, just eager for the next season, the next phase of what you're going to do. We thank and praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said amen? Amen. Let's all stand together. We're going to sing one final.